0: We were just seeing it a moment ago, in case you didn't recognize it. That was Psalm 139, or at least a rendition of Psalm 139. And David ends that beautiful psalm, which speaks so eloquently of God's intimate knowledge of every one of us. He ends that psalm with these words, and this is Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The grievous or the wicked way is any way that is idolatrous or any way that is contrary to the Lord's revealed will. And this is a prayer that God, whose gaze is penetrating will discover, will uncover, will rescue us from any such way and set us solidly on the everlasting way, on his way of truth. So I have to ask you as we begin to look at this here in Malachi chapter 1, are you ready for it? Have you hopefully given some time to prayer as we begin this and what the Lord may have to say to you in it? Are you ready to do this? Are you willing to pray for that, that the Lord will search your heart and will open up and show if there's any way that is grievous in your heart? Because that's precisely the purpose of, of Malachi's burden, beloved, to probe deeply, to discover sin, and to dig it out. His purpose is to disturb those who are at ease in Zion, to disturb them, not to make them comfortable, not to make them feel more at ease, but to disturb them to stir up those who may be making excuses to avoid or neglect their covenant duties. And while the effort applied initially to a specific time and a specific setting, the principles involved are timeless. And the Holy Spirit stands ready to use his own word in the hearts and the lives of men and women and children as is intended to teach, to reprove, to correct, and to discipline. This is a prophecy that drives its readers to Christ and to his work, his redeeming work. And it does so by setting before those who are his a standard of active belief that is quite serious and very convicting. It sets before you, his people, a standard of active belief that is serious and convicting. Paul says in his epistle to the Romans, beginning in the last verse of chapter 11, he says this, for him, that is Christ, and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And then in verse 12 he says this, I appeal to you therefore, because it's, it's for him and to him that all glory rests. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And Malachi, in his prophecy, if we were to sort of move from what Paul says there in Romans Malachi, as a prophet, comes to you and says, And exactly how is that going for you? How are you doing in this making yourself a living sacrifice? Because who you are and what you are is all a gift of God's love and grace to you through the Lord Jesus Christ. How are you doing? in giving yourself in heart and mind and soul to the Redeemer who has loved you and who gave himself for you. And he does it by asking a question of all God's people, all who are his by faith in the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. Now, as you look at these questions, These are not questions directed specifically towards those who deny and reject the gospel. He's not speaking to those who say they have no relationship with God and want no relationship with God. He is asking these questions of those who claim to have a relationship with God. Now, that doesn't mean that They may not be used to convict those who don't believe. But those who are in a state of rebellion against God and the gospel of Jesus Christ have a much more fundamental issue to deal with. And it's described beautifully by Jesus himself. And I pray that if you fall into that category this morning, and only you know your heart, and God knows it, but I would pray that he would open your ears to what Jesus had to say. In John chapter three, in verse three, Jesus speaking says, truly, truly, I say to you, he's talking to Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then he goes on to say to Nicodemus, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, that's Jesus Christ. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son to the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. (coughs) But whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. If you're outside of faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus says, this is where you stand before God this morning. That's where you are, condemned already because you have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. He goes on to say, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. If you know this morning that you have not been born again, then I urge you to speak to to me or to Steve or To one of the elders or the deacons or any one of the believers around you. It is never safe to delay when it comes to matters of the soul and eternity. And it would be a tragic thing for you to sit here this morning and hear these words of Christ appealing to you to look to the Son of God who was sent to save sinners. And for you to turn from that and walk out of here without giving it any regard or any thought or any prayer or any question, it would be tragic for that to happen. So we set that before you here with the understanding that where we're going from here is for those who do profess to know Jesus Christ. That have declared a commitment to him that have said that their lives belong to Christ and that you are his servants because that's the group to whom Malachi is putting these questions it's the nature of passages like the one before us today to either confirm or convict it's the nature of the passage it either affirms or convicts to either affirm us in our faith or to reveal to us our unbelief. And should God be pleased to use it to bring on us the blessing of conviction, that conviction can lead to one of three places. To repentance and renewal for the believer or it can bring the lost soul to repentance and salvation or it can raise in the lost soul the spirit of rebellion and resistance passages like this if they bring conviction that conviction leads in one of those three ways either repentance and renewal among those who believe Repentance and and embracing the gospel for those who haven't believed until they've heard it. Or further rebellion and resistance against the Lord. So here we go. Malachi chapter 1 verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? So that's the series as it begins here. And it begins with a statement of fact. Before the question is asked, the prophet makes a statement of fact. A son, any son, views his father with respect and you could say in in the same context any daughter looks at her father with respect the prophet's not making any specific reference here to the commandment that children are to honor their parents he's just making an everyday observation in the name of the lord he is not even reflecting on the motives Just the fact that sons in general view their fathers with respect. And he adds to, you see, the servant and his master, or the bondservant and his lord. And in both of these cases, whether you're talking about the son honoring his father, or the servant, bondservant, regarding his master, the motives may vary. For example, the honor may be simply a matter of dread. Some, some sons fear their fathers just because and they honor them just because they're afraid of them. It might be a sense of debt on the part of a servant. That may be why that servant is in fear of his master. He's in debt to him. Or it might be real respect for a father. Or for a master's character in life. But either way, this statement is just making the observation that you see it everywhere. You see sons showing honor to their fathers and servants showing fear to their masters. And that brings us then to the first question. The Lord asks those who profess to be his people... If then I am a father, where is my honor? Among those who claim to be my sons and daughters, where is my honor? And if I am a Lord, that is, among those who declare that I am the Lord of their life, if I am a Lord or a master, where is? is my fear. Now the first part of the question is, if this is a common thing, that sons honor their fathers, then why, if indeed I am a father, by the rights of creation and the right of election, well, where is my honor? Where is that look and that heart of respect that's naturally and properly due to me? King David taught you and me to pray in Psalm 119, and verses 73 and 74. Your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice, because I have hoped in your word. Lord, you're the one who's made me. You're the one who's given me life. You're my Father and my Lord. Give me understanding of your commandments that those who see me in honor and fear of you will rejoice because they see the hope that I have in your word. In Deuteronomy, the Lord asked his people this, and this is Deuteronomy 32, verse 6. The Lord said, Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? And the question is in the face of Israel's sin, and the Lord is saying, If I'm the one who made you and gave you life and called you, is this how you repay me? By showing me this disrespect? By showing me this sort of half hearted love? The second part of the question is like the first. If I'm regarded as a lord or a master, where is the reverent dread toward me that even earthly lords are shown? Where is that serious reverence of heart that fears to offend? Where, he asks, says Matthew Henry, was the evidence that they were observant of his orders and true to his interests. Where's the evidence that as my servants, you are following my word and concerned with my interests. That is, what is good and best for my kingdom and for my glory and for my household. Where's the evidence that those things are a part of your service if you really fear me as a master fears a servant. Now, there's an obvious application here. It's self-evident. Anyone who calls the God of heaven Lord and Father through Jesus Christ is naturally expected to show honor and reverence to him, both outwardly and inwardly. It can't be any other way, can it? None of us here imagines that if we say that we acknowledge God as our creator and we acknowledge him as our Lord and Master, that we are not obligated to show him reverence outwardly and inwardly. We wouldn't dare say such a thing. We recognize that 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 is the obvious result of of our profession of faith, of our so-called relationship with the living God. The book of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter twelve and verses twenty-eight through twenty-nine. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus, then, excuse me, and thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. You get the force of what Hebrews is saying there? We know who God is. We have been shown such grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. So let us worship him with with a sense of reverence, with an acknowledgement of his honor and his authority and his glory as God and let us do it with a spirit of awe, a a fear, not, not a dread, but a, a holy fear of who he is as the living God. And Peter says, by the Holy Spirit, in First Peter chapter 1 and verse 14, <clears throat> that we are to carry ourselves as obedient children. And he says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So your God and Father puts this question forward. Where is my fatherly honor and where is my lordly fear? Now, as we look at that, you may be saying to yourself, wait a minute you left something out of what you're pressing there this is addressed to the priests in Israel and it doesn't seem to apply to the nation in general well I would answer in part at least that at time the priests represented the whole nation the priests were the representatives of the people And they imaged the people. You get the leaders you vote for. You get the leaders you allow. You get the leaders you approve of by not stopping them from doing what they shouldn't do. They were the reflection of the hearts and minds of the people. And they stood before the Lord in their place. But in addition, beloved... The New Testament clearly teaches the priesthood of every believer. And therefore, the responsibility of every believer to serve the Lord with heartfelt love and reverence. What does Peter say in 1 Peter chapter 2 in verses 4 and 5? You, as you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy what? Priesthood. So does that mean that as priests you get all the privileges but none of the responsibilities? You think that's what he means here? You get all the, all the privileges, all the blessings, but you don't have any of the responsibilities. No, we know that's not it. Because what is our calling? To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's our calling, to offer acceptable sacrifices. Sacrifices that acknowledge the honor that's due to his name and the fear that he deserves as our master. Later on, Peter says, in First Peter 2.9, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's your duty and my duty, beloved, as believers to call, because we've been brought out of darkness and into this marvelous light, to set up the glory of God and to acknowledge the glory of God. John, writing to the seven churches, says in John 1, verses 4 through 6, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, made us priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now don't misunderstand me. This doesn't absolve the elders from their duties, but it doesn't allow the people To escape them either. What is said to the priests is said to all. Nay, it is said to us, who as Christians profess ourselves not only to be the people of God, but priests to Him, Matthew Henry says. Now the reason this question is put forth is because there are despisers. So the question comes to us now with it. when this question is put, there's a response from the heart and from the conscience. As you think about this, and this question being put to you by the Lord, if I am your father, where is my honor? If I am your Lord, where is my fear? That brings a response from the conscience or the heart. And you'll notice that the Lord followed the question with a charge. He was putting the question to those priests who despised his name. We get a practical idea of the nature of despising from Numbers chapter 15. Beginning in verse 29, it says this, Numbers 15, 29. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the people of Israel, and for the stranger who sojourns among them. But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is a native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord or despises the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from among his people. Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. So we kind of get a definition here of the idea of despising. It's knowing the will of the Lord and not doing it. It's knowing what is forbidden and doing that. Knowing and understanding his will to carry out certain things in his name and not doing so. Knowing and understanding his will that some things are forbidden and indulging in them. And in this case, the priest did so by either refusing to do what was commanded or by doing what was forbidden. And that brings us to the second question in this section. And the second question comes from the priest, and it is the response of their conscience. And it comes across as defensive because rather than confessing the obvious, they demand proof. They demand proof from God of any questionable effort on their part to show both the honor and the fear due to the Lord. You ask this question. If I am a father, where's my honor? Where can you show that we haven't honored you? Matthew Henry says, Their defense was their offense, and in justifying themselves, their own tongues condemned them. They say, How have we despised your name? Now, just think about it, beloved. Even if they had not been guilty of such obvious violations of the law that we find that they have. This would have been the perfect time for them to exercise a contrite and broken heart, wouldn't it? To reply in that spirit. As the New Testament teaches, even when we've done all that the law demands, we are still unprofitable servants because we've only done what was required of us. And just on the basis of that truth, that they really felt they had done everything that was required of them, there was still room for them to be humble and contrite and to say, no, we haven't shown you what you deserve. This would have been the time in the immediate context for the priest to reply with Psalm 19, verses 12 through 13. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I will be blameless, and then I will be innocent of great transgression. Lord, surely if you're even bringing this question to me, there's room for me for repentance, and for questioning how I walk and how I live before you. In Psalm 130, verses 2 through 4, David prays, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. But instead, they act pained, pained that their integrity should be challenged or questioned by the Lord. And to fully appreciate, beloved, what is going on here, we have to pause and we have to understand the language being employed. Because the name of the Lord is a term that goes beyond just the actual words. Father and Lord, in this case. It encompasses all that God is as God. All that is expressed by those titles and and all the titles he has as the living God. For example, if I'm introducing someone to you, we're staying together and I tell you that that person was an Eagle Scout, it brings a whole testimony of achievement and character to your appreciation of that person. If you have any idea what that means, just using that term changes your attitude towards that person. In like but far superior manner, when we say that God is our Father, every good and perfect concept associated with fatherhood is reflected in that title. When we call him Lord, the same is implied. His protection of us is broad and it's complete. His provision is perfect in every way and our duty to him is clear and total. So their reply is, in what way have we failed to honor or respect all that you are as God or Father? And in what way have we failed to fear and reverence you as the Lord our God? That's what they're saying. And when you look back at that, even you and I can ask the question, was it true that they could not imagine any way they couldn't imagine any way in which they might have slighted their heavenly father Is it true they just couldn't we can't even imagine this we're being asked this question is such an insult to us how could we can't even grasp the question Is it true that they loved him with nothing less in all their hearts, in all their minds, in all their strength? Is that really what, what is true about them? Was it true that their service to the Lord was so pure and upright, so thorough and complete, that he was actually being a little unfair in asking this thing of them? They seemed to act as though it was an insult. But it was nothing of the sort, Beloved. It was a nudge to their conscience. And because it was tender with sin, they winced. And thereby added, as Henry observes, daring impudence to their daring impiety. Now, we're at verses 7 and 8. We only have just a moment to look at how this proceeds. But we'll we'll work our way through it. But the Lord states another fact. By offering polluted food upon my altar. But we say, you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Would you present that to your governor? Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. And it's interesting as we look at this to note that the Lord's reply is not direct. In other words, it's not offered as a direct answer to the question. It is a simple statement, a fact. A fact that renders their question disingenuous. Perhaps it could be illustrated like this. You're with a crowd of people, and you ask someone... Just in the midst of conversation, you know, I notice you always buy red cars. Why do you buy red cars all the time? <coughs> and the person looks around, offended by that question, and says, "What do you mean? Why would you say that?" I don't always buy red cars. And then you, turning to the crowd, reach in your pocket and pull out a picture of all the cars this person ever owned, and they're all red. You're not actually addressing the person. You're just stating a fact that illustrates that what you said about them is true. And that's what the Lord does here. They say, in what way have we despised you? And the Lord says, by the things you offer on the altar. Look, the evidence is right here. Right in front of your face, right in front of everybody's face. Look what you're doing. And that's where the evidence is. It is their failure to show him the respect he ought to have had from them and to exhibit the fear that was appropriate among them for the people who called him Lord. Things that didn't match what he required. Things which he had forbidden and things which were unfit and unworthy for him as the Lord God and as their father. And this willful and sloppy service betrayed in irreverence and disrespect that proved shameful. Matthew Henry again says, They not only made no account of sacred things, but they made an ill use of them and perverted them to the service of the worst and vilest purposes. Their own pride pride covetousness and luxury I have to close because I'm already over time and we'll in two weeks beef up the application here but it's blatantly obvious isn't it if you go back to Romans 12 1, where we are told to offer ourselves as a reasonable sacrifice in the light of what God has done for us It's important to note that though the offense was at the altar, the Lord clearly implied that they offered, that what they offered and when they offered things, they were polluted offerings that polluted God Himself. That's what He says. They they have polluted me. The word bread doesn't mean wheat products, but it's anything that's offered. But their slovenly service both in heart and deed. By that service, they made Jehovah look like every other dunghill deity. It made a mockery of the attributes of God and suggested that he could be served with the same heartless, empty worship as any of those other gods and was worthy of nothing more. The question put before us all by the Holy Spirit through the words of Malachi is very simple. Is our service from the heart such as bears witness to God's fatherly love and care for us and his lordly authority and power over us? Or does it pollute him and his name? It's not for us to look around and make an assessment of others. It's for us to look to ourselves. What impression does my sacrificing and my service to the Lord give concerning who God is as my Father and my Lord? And whatever we come out, however we come out in the analysis... Two things are certain, beloved. We need Jesus, and we need the gracious work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and in our lives. Our work is never going to find acceptability in our earnestness or in our desire or in our performance. It finds it in Christ. And so when we think about, are we honoring the Lord in the way we serve him, we have to fall back there first and say, no, it's not, but I'm resting in Christ. I'm praying that the, the, the worship that I give, the service that I give will be acceptable in his sight. And, and that we're so committed to, to the necessity of being in Christ to give to our Father and our Lord the glory that he deserves, that we are afraid to step outside of our hope and our trust and confidence in him. No, it's in Christ that we come here to worship this morning. It's in Christ that we lift up our voices to the Lord. It's in Christ that we want to be heard. It's in Christ that we offer our service. However that service is offered. That it's all in Him. And all covered with His blood. And all protected by Christ. And what He has done for us. And that's where we begin. And that's what we fall back upon. Paul. Talking about himself, anybody could lay claim to being the man who could have served God in a way that honored him as Father and Lord. It would be Paul. But what did Paul say? Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's where my hope is. I want to Talk about Richard stock for a moment as I close in his classic work on Malachi Richard stock says that too many Christians are libertarians and Valentinians and have the name of Christian but not the thing itself and what he means by that is they are in Christ for the liberty and the love of To themselves, and not the service and love of the Savior. Libertarians and Valentinians, the love of liberty, the love of self, but not the love of Christ. And that's where we need the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. We'll come back to this. Remember I told you last week that maybe we would need to tighten our seatbelts because Malachi isn't just an Old Testament prophecy that's interesting to look at. If God chooses to use it in our hearts, it's going to change the face of this congregation. We are dependent on him to do that. Bless pray. Father in heaven, we pray that the word of your word will strike to our hearts by the power and work of your Holy Spirit in us. Father, please do not leave us to ourselves, but please, Lord, begin a work in the midst of us that will help us as individuals and then as a body of believers to face the reality of this challenge. Because, Lord, We do love you, and Lord, we do fear you, and Lord, we do honor you, and we do want to live for you. But Lord, look down on us in our weakness. Remember that we're but dust. Pity us like a father pities his children. Have mercy on us, Lord. Make us what we cannot be in ourselves. For your great glory. For our blessing. For the testimony of Jesus Christ that comes from us. Hear us, Lord, answer us for Christ's sake.